0: Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson.
1: And I'm Livia Snudden. This week, we are going to be reviewing *Dracula* by J.D. Barker and Doc Ray Stoker. Rob, when you heard we were going to do this, did, did, did the names of one of the authors mean anything at all to you? Like, did it sound at all vaguely familiar? Or <laughs> uh, You mean Doc Ray Stoker? That one. That's the, the Stoker,
0: one. Because it was Bram Stoker who wrote Dracula.
1: Yeah yeah and how coincidental that we get another stoker writing another dracula book right well that's what
0: i that's what uh because we did dracula versus hitler and i think that was more because of the hitler you know so like well i guess what i'm saying is i wouldn't just read any dracula book there'd have to be something (laughs) that like you know and anything
1: versus hitler
0: anything versus hitler yeah Yeah,
1: godzilla versus hitler (laughs) next week i'm booked um yeah so this is i mean we're going to talk more about it but this is a prequel to dracula Uh, i'm going to give you the bio for um for the one author jd barker who i mean i kind of get the feeling that maybe he's doing a little bit more of the heavy lifting on this you get that that feeling too
0: Kind of like uh, the J.J. Abrams and uh, Mm -hmm. Doug Doug Dorst or whatever.
1: Yep. Yep. Kind of like that. So here's the bio for J.D. Barker. He is the internationally bestselling author of Forsaken, a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award for superior achievement in a first novel and winner of the new Apple Medalist Award. His work has been compared to Stephen King, Dean Koontz, and Thomas Harris. His latest novel, The Fourth Monkey, released in June 2017. His third novel, The Fifth to Die, releases July 2018. He has been asked by the Stoker family to co-author the forthcoming prequel to Dracula, due out in October 2018. His novels have been translated in numerous languages and optioned for both film and television. Barker currently resides in Pennsylvania with his wife Dana and their daughter Ember. Uh you would think it's been twelve days since this book is released that someone would update the bio that hasn't been no, updated no, since middle of twenty seventeen. Right, yeah. Yeah. Nope.
0: No, that was no really case. confusing for a second when you said the fourth monkey and his third novel was the fifth to die, and I was like, Oh, these yeah. numbers <laughs> These numbers are messing. It was,
1: with me. it was not easy to read, and then reading everything in past tense, right? Because we're talking about you know is going to be released in July of you know twenty eighteen, and yeah, it's a little bit challenging. Get on it, guys! I don't know how much time we could spend criticizing bios, and nobody, almost nobody, listens. We've actually had a few authors listen and do a better job, but yeah, by and large, the the authoring community is uh, is not taking heed of the wise words of wisdom we're providing on bios,
0: and it's free advice, so I don't know why. They wouldn't, I mean, it's, uh, yeah,
1: I don't know. The other thing I wanted to say about this bio is uh, he was just a finalist for the Brom Stoker Award, and here he is. I mean, obviously you guys get the gist of, of what we're reviewing here, and you would think that that would lend him a little more credibility, get him an actual Brom Stoker Award and not just be a finalist.
0: Those Stokers are pretty uh, pretty hardcore. So here, uh, Doc Ray Stoker doesn't have an an Amazon bio, Uh, associated with this book, or I guess his other books, and so it was a little bit difficult. Livius went to Wikipedia, pulled some stuff out, and then just deleted it all, but really what you need to know is that he's the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, the person who wrote Dracula, so uh, this is a blood (laughs) relative of uh,
1: the original. (laughs) Welcome to October.
0: (sighs) (sighs) Yeah, so... um, So that's what drew my attention to the book. Livius uh, sent me a little thing, and he's like, hey, this is coming out. And I was like, oh, interesting. Usually I just say yes to everything Livius says, but it was easier this time. Because this was a blood relative.
1: (laughs) Please always say blood like that, no matter (laughs) when you're talking about it. Here is a a lengthy synopsis of what we're going to be discussing this evening. Uh, The prequel to Dracula... Inspired by notes and texts left behind by the author of the classic novel, Dracul is a supernatural thriller that reveals not only Dracula's true origins, but Bram Stoker's and the tale of the enigmatic woman who connects them. It is 1868, and a 21-year-old Bram Stoker waits in a desolate tower to face an indescribable evil. Armed only with crucifixes, holy water, and a rifle, he prays to survive a single night, the longest of his life. Desperate to record what he has witnessed, Brahm scribbles down the events that led him here. A sickly child, Brahm spent his early days bedridden in his parents' Dublin home, tended to by his caretaker, a young woman named Ellen Crone. When a string of strange deaths occur in a nearby town, Brahm and his sister Matilda detect a pattern of bizarre behavior by Ellen, a mystery that deepens chillingly until Ellen vanishes suddenly from their lives. Years later, Matilda returns from studying in Paris to tell Bram the news that she has seen Ellen and that the nightmare they've thought long-ended is only beginning. Bum-bum-bum.
0: Bum-bum-bum. And that's really, like, that's the thing. We we always read the synopsis, and then we dive right into telling the exact same thing. Um, so I'm going to make a note of a little bit of the way that the book is laid out. It does go uh, between, what is it, 20... No, it's probably like 14 years, right? It's a 14-year difference in time. Mm-hmm. yep. Um, from when Brahm is uh, the ailing youth to when he is, what is he's like 21. Which I guess like then was like a full-blown adult, but now it's like... It's
1: middle-aged at that time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> which, uh, by the way, uh, most of the book takes place, I think, just a couple of years after the American Civil War ended. So that's just a little... A little perspective here. I always think of it as like ancient times when we're talking about like the eighteen hundreds and stuff, but really it wasn't that long ago. Um yeah, so the the book I don't know why I made that aside. The, <laughs> the book jumps from seven year old majorly the seven year old Bram timeline to the twenty one year old uh timeline for the for the majority of the book so it'll go back and forth and back and forth but it also jumps perspectives sometimes right there's some different perspectives throughout the book
1: oh for sure there's there's uh, probably five perspectives or so and it's done from what i remember and i read dracula when i was and 12 years old maybe um but kind of the same way uh, that does a lot of it is journal entries you know, somebody writing a letter to somebody is one perspective, and then a journal entry is another, and then there's just kind of like the omnipotent narrator for part of it, and then it goes back to somebody else's journal entry. So, because... Did you know, there's a
0: word for that. Um, no, I discovered this when I was looking hmm. up uh, information about the original original Dracula book, uh, and I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong, but epistolary, e-p-i-s-t-o-l-a-r-y, which hmm. basically means like a book written as a collection of letters.
1: Interesting. Or like
0: uh I guess di- diaries.
1: Yeah, that is uh that is interesting. And I guess it makes sense that there's a book. And I'm guessing that a lot of this probably um there was probably a lot more of this previously when people wrote letters and wrote diaries. <laughs> yeah. More often. Yeah, I'm trying to be funny. I just figured that now if you did an epistolary it would be like Facebook posts and tweets. Yeah. Uh, a book filled with someone telling their story that way dms maybe
0: yeah totally uh so do you want to go through story a little bit or we could also kind of talk about like because the the obvious question is going to be like if this is about brahm stoker how much is it you know like rooted in in fact or history
1: so let let me start by saying (laughs) that up until i read the epilogue I was kind of calling just bullshit on this whole, and I will go back and read it inspired by notes and texts left behind by the author of the classic novel. So when I say that I thought, Oh, okay, well maybe Bram Stoker had notes on a prequel. Like maybe he was like, Oh, I'm going to dig more into Dracula's origins or something. You know what I mean? Because you get that. Uh, We've seen a few and even talked about a few books on this podcast where someone else has written the book based on, you know what was left behind by the original author right um there are claims uh made at the end of this book how do i say this um there are claims made in the not in the epilogue but in the the afterward i guess would be the right right afterward yes
0: yeah a non-part of the book
1: that um essentially that that the story we're telling you is true Mm -hmm. and is really based on notes and stuff that they have found of, of, um, Bram Stoker's original text. And quite interestingly, the missing 101 pages that were originally part of the story. So a little bit of setup when this was submitted to be published, there were a hundred plus additional pages and Bram Stoker submitted it as a, uh, as a true story. And through the publishing process, which we talked about on our last episode, <laughs> on how this can work sometimes, the opposite happened. They said, "Listen, this is good stuff, man, but no one's going to buy this as a true story. So why don't you go back and rewrite it as fiction?"
0: He was the OG James Frey.
1: Yeah, kind of backwards, but yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, if if what um, Doc Ray Stoker and and J D um, Barker uh, say is true then we are to believe that everything we are telling you from here forward actually happened.
0: Yeah. There you go. I believe it. Why not? I believe it.
1: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, As far as the story goes, um, there's actually kind of a third perspective that I don't think you really touched on. And this was not very clear to me until 80% of the way into the book. So we go from, uh 1868 when the bulk of the story happens back to you know as robin mentioned like 14 years previously and then some cases even farther back than that to kind of address some local you know myths fairy tales maybe part of the story who knows um but we do see brahm stoker's perspective this that's mentioned in the synopsis of him being in this room is a relatively small part of the story but that takes place outside of what i would say is the bulk of the story
0: Yes, yeah. yeah, that first part of the synopsis that you read. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's actually maybe 10% of the book, yeah. if even that. So there, that's a different time frame, too. So that's looking back on the things that are happening in the bulk of the book.
0: Yeah. So to give you an idea of some story, kind of like it, it mentions in the, in the, the synopsis, uh, one of the big chunks that we're introduced to, a lot of what we're introduced to you at the beginning of the book is, Bram Stoker as a child, and he um, was very sickly, um, and it's described in a way, but it seems like it's almost like to the, like on his deathbed, like he never left his bedroom, he had like bouts of just like horrible you know, illness and pain and, and just not being able to move, no strength, blah blah blah, and um, treatments never really seemed to do much but they had this uh, um, I guess she's a Maid, whatever you want to call her, um, like a servant, like a live in kind of
1: more of a nanny because yeah.
0: she was a, they called her nanny, they called her Nana. Um, uh, she, yeah, so she was like a, a, a nanny is exactly what she was. And, um, she, for some reason, when he was like at his worst, she would kind of lock herself away with him, and um, he, he his health would you know boost up. And then she would have to go away for a few days looking very, you know, haggard. And then after a few days, she'd come back and she'd look like her normal self. He'd be back to normal until after a while, the illness kind of took over again. He'd get really sick. And then she'd do the same thing, lock herself away with him. He would bounce back. She'd have to go away for a while and kind of do some mysterious thing and come back uh, looking like normal. And so that was the beginning of the book is we were set up with a Brom Stoker who uh, is very sickly and and really realistically uh, has no expectation of living very long. But this uh, mysterious nanny treatment is is um, doing stuff that even whatever medicine would be considered modern for the day couldn't help with.
1: Yeah, and you know, I wonder too, so a couple things. You know, where this is supposed to be portrayed as as essentially, you know, based on a true story, right? I mean, that's the vibe that we get from all this stuff about it being inspired by texts and stuff. Okay. And, yeah, I get it. These people lived in the 1860s. And we think, like, oh, well, people just weren't as sharp as we are back then. I mean, as we are now, which I don't believe. I think people have had the same level of, like, general intelligence, you know, probably throughout most of time. Like these people didn't find any of this weird because the way that Rob explained it sounds super <laughs> simplified, but no, that's exactly it. They're yeah. like, he'd get really sick, and then she'd be in there for 20 hours with him, and she'd come out looking 20 years older, and then she'd disappear for three days, and then come back. Like, and I get it. If you have a sick child, you probably don't give a fuck what makes the child better. You know what I mean? Like, if it really comes down to my child could die. And weird shit happens, and then my child is better again for six months or three months or two months or whatever. Like you probably live with a lot, but yeah, like nobody's really terribly concerned about. It. The only people that think this is weird are a seven-year-old and like his like six-year-old sister. Yeah. So I, I, I don't. I mean, yeah, that's... it doesn't
0: really raise an eyebrow. I guess there. Well, <laughs> first of all, like the family is massive, right? Isn't there like so? There's the the mom and dad Stoker. And then there's Brom and Matilda, and then there's got to be, like, three other brothers and sisters.
1: Yeah, I think there are five or six of them all together, and a couple of them just don't get mentioned, like, at all. Yeah, so, I I mean, mean,
0: if I were those parents, like, maybe I just wasn't paying much attention, because also, this is, like, not long after the Irish potato famine, and they lived in Ireland, so, like, shit was pretty rough for a lot of people, so, I don't know, like, maybe I'm just making excuses for them, but... It seemed like they had a lot going
1: on. So, the discovery of the weird shit that happens is all done through Brahm and Matilda over the course of um, really just like a week or two when Brahm yeah. falls to his most ill. Now, they already have some suspicions, but uh, as uh, when Brahm makes a yet another miraculous recovery, him and Matilda go into full on, like full blown, like Nancy Drew Hardy Boys mode where they're going to figure <laughs> out what's going on. And they discover some really disturbing things about uh nana ellen's um habits so they wind up following her and they see some super super disturbing things and then that's capped off with uh you know essentially the next day nana ellen is gone she has quit her job moved all her shit, and she is gone for good yeah. um from you know the family nanny and then we venture forward seven or eight years uh, and this is mentioned in the synopsis where matilda has seen Ella, ellen on the streets in paris and noticed that she looks exactly the same Creepy. so matilda yeah brahm has let go he has not been ill and he understands that somewhere deep inside him he understands that this woman did something to him that had an effect that not only made him whole but he goes on to be successful like in sports and like you know school and college he's like teen wolf he, yeah he doesn't get sick um, he can see better at night than most people, you know, all the things that would indicate to us now, you know, a couple hundred years later that uh, he's probably some kind of vampire or something or another is happening with him. Yeah. Um, but Matilda has never let go of this. So she has stayed on this since she was a kid. She's never forgotten. She's always tried to seek out answers. So she convinces Brom that they need to further investigate.
0: Yeah, and the way that she gets him on board is really cool. Cause like, home girl goes to the library, and um, basically draws a connection between a, a death in the in the current day and a death from when they were like the age like when Brom was seven, and uh, calls calls Brom over to the library and, and basically lays out all the evidence and says like, hey, this is pretty much irrefutable proof that like some fishy's going on. And so they they go to start investigating that um, and try and see what the connection is between this thing and and the Nana Ellen, who they think is making a comeback into their lives.
1: Thus, they engage the help of Thornley, one of the many Stoker siblings, who is a uh, doctor um, who is facing his own challenges with his wife, who uh, has taken ill um, over the previous months. And then the only other real character of mention, I think, is gonna be Arm Arminius Vanbury. Vanbury.
0: For for a guy named Livius to free yeah, to I know, mess that I know, name I know. up. I know.
1: Arminius, I'm thinking, right? Arminius? Arminius. <laughs> I, yeah,
0: I saw it as Arminius.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um who is essentially I'm just gonna say it, he's essentially Van Helsing.
0: Yeah, that's exactly okay. what he is. Yeah. yeah.
1: So um
0: <laughs> like he's got all this know-how but he doesn't share anything but he's not like he's not phased by anything it could have been like he had eight tentacles growing out of his face and he'd be like hmm did you say eight
1: yeah i see i've heard of this before and then yeah he has some yeah um so that i mean that's really the 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 broad strokes of the story is that they are looking to track down um ellen and uh rob mentioned the 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 deaths that uh they're they're um, comparisons drawn to from their youth and their current day which is um uh, has a lot to do with the oqueave family i think O apostrophe yeah, C U I kwee like y- family uh and so on and so forth and then it shouldn't be shocking based on the name of the book that another character another historical <laughs> fictional monster may make an appearance in this book
0: yeah um one thing I want to mention: the where they meet, Arminius is at the Hellfire Club. Have you heard of the Hellfire Club?
1: I have, um, it, but I wasn't really sure what it was, so I, I did. I did have to Google it, but I believe there have been books and maybe even movies made about the Hellfire Club.
0: Yeah, it was just like this weird, like elite society of people that wanted to get together, and I don't know. It, it seems like they didn't really have a purpose except for just to be an elite club, like a secret society like they would all get together and just kind of club it up, like drink, entertain each other, or whatever. But um yeah. yeah. It was like
1: the ultimate like boys club, but for rich weirdos. For rich weirdos, which um
0: I was watching I was watching. I watch these YouTube videos sometimes just as like I'm eating dinner or something just to pass the time. And it was one about I can't remember oh how uh weird the life of benjamin franklin was and i think he was a member of the hellfire club
1: interesting so, yeah. yeah there's a pretty extensive wikipedia article on um a, a number of clubs actually so the hellfire club uh was a name for several exclusive clubs for high society rakes established in britain and ireland in the 18th century and then there's a duke of wharton's club sir francis dashwood's club uh, and phoenix society and a couple others but uh yeah, I guess that's it. But yeah, so he's a member of the Hellfire Club and uh, Thornley knows um, knows him from being a member of the Hellfire Club, but then also knows that that this guy's into like weird occult stuff and says, hey, he might be able to help. They actually they actually go to him for a translation of a document oh, yeah. that Hungarian. they found. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah.
0: Okay, I forgot that. Yeah, and plot-wise, um, this is kind of where we run into spoiler territory, really. Like... The book is about um, these, uh, these uh, bizarre happenings from their youth um, suddenly come back into light in maybe a little bit more of a gruesome way in their adulthood. And as they're trying to like find the truth, it seems like what they're pursuing may also be pursuing them in a way, and we just get to see where it all, all plays out. So um, that's probably all we can tell you about the story.
1: Um, there are some older stories that are talked about, and I'm going to talk about this, um, in a weird kind of, you know, roundabout way. My favorite part of this book was, uh, was the, there's a story about a young woman, um, that pops up later in the book, which I think her story completely eclipses all of the, the current yep. day story. fucking fantastic and i don't want to talk a lot about it but every part of that story was just tremendous and and again you know so much better than the story we're reading that includes that story yeah would you
0: consider it would it be a fable
1: uh or like uh, well, a straight up fairy tale, almost. You know, I mean, you and I both read the book, so I don't want to say too much. Um, yeah, I would say that that's yeah, that's been passed down, and and, and different people have heard that story. So yeah, fable, I think would be yeah. would be probably um a pretty accurate.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was a great um, and I wish I remembered the weird Irish name for it. Uh, I wish I had actually looked up to see if it was an actual fable or something that was made specifically for this book, but um. Yeah, probably one of the most interesting parts of the book, most compelling, and um, I guess it probably has the biggest impact on the story overall. Um, I would say of mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, everything. But yeah, there's a good reason Livius isn't telling you much about this fable.
1: Yeah, other than that, I mean it's it's a it's very much a Dracula story. I mean, it even feels like like it has parallels. Um, to the Dracula story that we know, essentially a group of people all kind of banded together to to fight the great evil. Um, I, I will go on to say that the Dracula that's represented in this is very much the Dracula that we've come to know and love or fear and hate or, or whatever, however it is you feel about him, you know, through through modern modern society. And then, of course, it being the, you know, quote unquote basis for for the actual Dracula story. Um, you know, those those rules apply. Yeah. Very traditional, I guess, is what I'm saying, if you want to. Yeah,
0: yeah. And the style of it is uh, is very nicely, like, that classic gothic horror that you would expect if you were reading older stories uh, from around the time that Dracula was written. I feel like it was nicely, it nicely emulated that. It didn't feel like something that was written in a modern way. Um, it had a nice historic... Gothic feel to it
1: um i uh i don't know if i have any a whole lot anything else to say about the story itself one thing i do want to mention um that i found i don't know interesting and i, I don't believe that um you could have caught this um do you remember man a few know, a few episodes ago maybe six months ago we were talking and i had mentioned that i read uh carmilla which was um uh. Vampire fiction that actually predated Dracula.
0: Oh yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, um, it was like a penny dreadful or something. Yes, yeah. They encounter that guy in this book. The guy who wrote oh. it, Sheridan Le Fanu, is actually the author of Carmilla. So I believe he was also a member of the Hellfire Club, if I remember correctly. That's when, awesome. when they, yeah, but I was like, is that? I, I looked at the name and I was like, am I? Am I making? It? So I had to go. I was like, no, that's that's definitely him. So. That was kind of a nice nod to um the the person that that wrote a, a vampire book before Dracula,
0: yeah, nice little tip of the cap
1: mhm yeah that's I that's cool, so. yeah,
0: yeah, so yeah, uh, this is one of those things where like I, I don't think that we have enough substance for spoiler talk, but um there's like a, a a big kind of part of the book that Livius and I would love to talk to, but we don't want to spoil, so it's we're kind of in this weird middle area with that, but I do want to point out just a little bit about the writing style, because I, I think the book was very well written, and um, it had a good pace to it. It wasn't super fast. It wasn't like a page turner, but when I, when I was texting with Livius, uh, I told him it was, the word I used was engrossing. Like, I just kept, I, I really got engrossed in the story, and so here is an example of some of the writing, just to kind of give you an idea of of what type of style you'd be in for just a little bit of setup this is from the perspective of thornley uh brahm's brother uh talking about a person who was at the a college that he he knows well as i turned the corner at the royal college of surgeons i waved to mr barrowcliffe feeding pigeons at saint stephen's green one could set a watch by his regularity for he stood there every day come rain or shine he was so punctual in fact that if you were to arrive before him you could witness the pigeons gathering in wait at the shore of the lake near the small falls. I just thought that was so, like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that was wonderful because the pigeons, like, the whole, like, the pigeons know to go there is such, like, a like a backup for the fact that this person was punctual. It was just very well written. Um, and just, like, this quaint, charming moment. It didn't need to be that elaborate, but it was, like... Very nice set dressing for what was going on.
1: I agree, and yeah, the writing—you know—you mentioned it, but it's it's very classic gothic style. Um, like I said, it 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 um, meshes really well, from what I remember of how Dracula was written. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I, I think they did a great job in that. I do want to follow up on something that we talked about. So, I'm going to get this wrong. Diarg Do is the the myth that that I talked about yeah. for this book. Um, the fable, whatever we decide to call it, which is well, I can't say it's real, but it exists um, as, as a fable outside of this story. So it wasn't created for this story um, It definitely exists. I mean, I only spent a, a moment kind of cursory glancing over the article, but it does seem to be in keeping um, With what we read in this story, which was definitely for for me the the shining gem uh, of the whole thing
0: Oh, no, it's um, good to know that that's like a like a real thing.
1: That's a thing. Um, I don't know if it's as eloquently put in any of these different like wiki entries that exist for it, um, but I definitely love that. Um, you know, character-wise, I guess I wanted to talk about one other thing. Um, the the two characters that really stood out for me were were the women, Matilda, who is a very interesting character, and uh, and Ellen, who's the kind of catalyst for all this, as so she's the you know, very obviously a vampire, right? From the synopsis and the not aging over 15 years and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, man, Bram Stoker fell flat for me in this book. He was just so two-dimensional that I was really surprised. I mean, written by a, an ancestor of his. I, I thought he'd get a little more, you know, a little more oomph to him. And I just found him to be kind of flat. I found almost all the male characters to be very flat in this book.
0: I agree. Um, all around, I agree. And and <laughs> there's without spoiling anything, I will say that there is something that we discover about Brahms' relationship with uh, Nana Ellen. Uh, we discover it later in the book that we didn't know through like the entire reading of the book, and once you discover that, like he's even less of a like compelling character because uh, of of like a. I don't know how to say it without spoiling anything. But like once we find out this one thing about Rom, it's like, oh, dude, come on. So I liked him even less. You know, do you know what I'm referring to?
1: Yes, I I agree with you. I, it was just and I don't want to say it was disappointing. I just really, you know, the more I read about it, the the more I don't know. I just felt like I don't know. I don't know. I guess yeah. if I'm going to write a, a story and, and the, the focal point is going to be my my great, great grand uncle, like I'm probably going to dress him up a little better.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's uh, that brings into question, like, is is he really actually the focal point of this book? And, and it's easy to argue once you've read it that, like, he is not. Yeah. <laughs> so, probably, I mean, much like the, the book Dracula isn't necessarily about Dracula, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? As yeah. much as it is, like, the collection of characters who uh, encounter him. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm about ready to go into wrap ups and, and now I kind of have a different outlook on this book. So, um, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and go first. All right. <laughs> it's all the same to you. Um, I mixed feelings about this book. Um, I thought some of the characters fell a little flat. I'm not sure. Uh, and, and this is not, I, I don't know. I'm not sure how much I'm buying into the whole this actually happened to to Bram Stoker. Um, Probably more research is needed Um, overall. I like that. We're told that this is based on his notes and that maybe he thought he went through something like he goes through in this book, which, you know, if you haven't gotten it yet is that he flat out encountered vampires, um, uh, Dracula himself um, amongst a, a course of other undead folk. That being said, Now that I've learned that my favorite part of this book is the Djarg Du um, fable, myth, whatever, you know, it becomes a little harder to credit this story, you know, the the story that I'm reading when I know that my favorite parts of it are are rehashed from a different uh, story, if that makes sense. Um I, I enjoyed it. I thought that it had the great gothic horror feel. I thought that it was uh, great uh in parts as far as chilling and disgusting and stuff. There's um a portion of this book takes place inside a room, as mentioned in the synopsis, so there's no spoiler where Brahm is keeping um a vampire essentially from escaping. Um so he's in a in a room where there's a locked door that he, it's locked from the outside. But there's just this great scene setting where there's like 25 mirrors it's every mirror they could find on you know put up on the walls and there's crosses crawl you know carved into everything and He's throwing these white roses on the floor at the door and he's made this cream, uh, this paste out of holy water and some other stuff that'll that'll help, you know, do all this. And it's like this insane scene that every time they're in the room and talked about it, I could visualize it as this perfect, crazy setting. So there's a lot of great things in this book. Um, but by far, the Diargu du was my absolute favorite thing. Um, it dragged a little bit for me. I thought it was longer than it needed to be. Um, and, uh, I was really kind of disappointed in, in the Bram Stoker, um, as a character, uh, apparently I like Bram Stoker as an author and a creator more than I do as an actual person, or at least this representation of him. Um, that being said, overall, I, I enjoyed the book a lot and I'm going to give it, uh, let's throw Rob some funky math. So he has trouble doing this, uh, 3.75 stars.
0: All right. Um, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just make sure that my, um, my final rating brings us back to a, a full or a complete number. So, <laughs> um, yeah, in physical, like a paper book, I think this uh, adds up to about 510 pages or something like that, um, even though on Amazon it says something different. I was in a bookstore recently, and I saw it, so I flipped open to the end of the book, and it was like 512 or something like that. So not a short book, and um, it does not get off to a very fast start. So... Um, it is something that is kind of a slow burn. And uh, it, it's interesting because I feel like throughout the entire book, there's that element of, like, gothic, um, supernatural stuff going on to a degree. But at one point, it just ramps up real, real heavy. And then then it kind of like some more of the supernatural uh, unbelievable things like that your, your uh, suspension of disbelief is, is, is challenged like much harder at a certain point, And then it just kind of stays that way. So, uh, you know, there, there's a point where it just kind of takes off. And, um, I liked that slow burn kind of like world building kind of stuff. I don't know what you call it world building or whatever that happened at the beginning more than, Hey, there's vampires everywhere. Kind of stuff that, that happened eventually. So, um, To counter Livius a little bit, I will say that I am I'm a little relieved that Bram Stoker wasn't made into some like, like Indiana Jones like instant hero. When um we'd always known him as a guy who wrote a book, um to be fair, wrote several books, but obviously, you know, find someone that can tell you another book by Bram Stoker besides Dracula um, is what I'm getting at. So I'm I'm glad that the character wasn't like some badass hero, I'm glad that it was just kind of this person who went through something and then later on felt the need, felt compelled to get that story out into the world. Um, To me, that rang a little bit more genuine than if he became some weird, like, he became like the uh, 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 Van Helsing type character. So that being said, I thought it had this very authentic kind of gothic horror historical fiction kind of thing it was nice how they tied in little elements of history throughout like using the hellfire club and like livius had mentioned using the author um of that of that earlier vampire text Uh, i didn't know it at the time but i appreciate the fact that like real history was built into this book and um much like livius i will say that it's nice that they're at least saying hey this really happened no one's gonna believe it uh nor, nor should they probably. but I think it's a nice angle to take because uh, basically from what they say at least that was supposed to be the original approach uh, in, in Dracula was using it as like an actual uh, a nonfiction like this is something that happened. So all in all, I found the story moved well. I liked the characters, I liked the way it was written and um, there weren't too many things that really held me up. I will say, I agree with Livius about his favorite part of the book that fable is the book in a lot of ways, and everything else is just stuff that needed to be done to make that part of the story work and so it sucks that we can't talk about that but if you if you're if you're listening to this deciding whether or not you should read the book, uh the whole book is good, but that part is absolutely the best, and it has an impact on. The way that the story plays out in the end, that was very satisfying for me. And um, I think it saved it from being like a classic monster movie, stupid ending, because I was really satisfied with what went down. So all in all, I really liked it. And I'm going to give it 4.25 stars.
1: I knew it. It's <laughs> like, man, I could force them into a 4.25. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like that Blair Witch Project thing. So they they show some evidence. Now I was reading this on a traditional Kindle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you may have been able to see um, Stoker's notes better on your iPad. I'm guessing because oh, the they actually had yeah pictures of what are alleged um, portions, and they explain like how they were able to see these. How somebody I don't remember who it was actually at auction purchased um, you know an original i don't know whatever so they, they did somebody that yeah that had information that the rest of us are not accessible to it's also interesting to hear that it was published in different ways in different countries that yeah. essentially kind of like a raw shark texts kind of thing like if you get your hands on all of them you have a a, a bigger picture of nice. what the original story was supposed to be um so i give them a ton of credit and i mean you know, kudos, I, I guess. I don't know. Where do you go on this? Right. So <laughs> Stoker's, uh, great, great grand um, you know, as a tribute to his, uh, his great, great uncle, grand uncle, um, yeah. grand uncle. Yeah. Would, uh, you know, has his paid some homage through this in his other works. Cause I think everything he's done, if I remember correctly, is all, um, related to Dracula or if your last name Stoker is that just what you do? I I don't I don't know.
0: Well, wasn't he like a teacher, like a math teacher or something before?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. I
0: don't know. I was reading up on him a little bit. The thing that's interesting is before he wrote this book, he co-authored a sequel to Dracula called Dracula the Undead. I think. Did you know that?
1: Um, you know, I know his name has popped up a lot because I mean it's hard. You know, it makes news. Whenever he does something, you know, makes kind of literary news. Um, Here's kind of a list of things he's done. So there's Dracul um, under his credit. There is when uh, brave men shudder, the Scottish origins of Dracula powers of darkness, the lost version of Dracula, Dracula, (laughs) the undead, which I'm guessing is that sequel that you're talking talking about. Uh, Dracula, Dracula in visual media. You know what I mean? It's so essentially everything he's he's got credited to his name is kind of tied into it to his uh, his blood, uh, you know, his his blood ties to the original author. So
0: the thing that. All right. So I was reading. I went to Wikipedia just to read like the the summary of Dracula, the undead, um, because there's a synopsis which just kind of like teases it. But like the summary just basically tells you the whole story, like the whole plot. And the thing that was interesting about that is they're tying in, um, like, it seems like they were going Penny Dreadful style. They were pulling in any kind of gothic reference they could get to. Um, Like, uh, what's the Bathory?
1: Elizabeth Um, Bathory. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: Like, she's in it. And there's all this stuff going on. And and it seemed like they were just, like, kitchen sinking, you know, (laughs) anything that could be, like, a, a... A pop reference for that time like the yeah
1: to be fair though let's 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 take their approach for a little bit right this current approach that brahm stoker actually met this dracula character you know and it was involved with vampires so now if you take dracula as a real person He might have had some interest in an Elizabeth Bathory, right?
0: Yeah.
1: woman that's staying young by bathing in blood. Like, if you were the guy, if you were Dracula, you'd have to be like, i got to meet this chick.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess, like, (laughs) he would at least raise an eyebrow.
1: That's true. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, it happens, so, in modern day, right? You have celebrities reach out to other celebrities with, like, interests and work together on projects and stuff. So, if this is the 1800s and you're a vampire... You know, maybe you could do a little bit of reaching out. You're like, hey, let's see if we can do something cool together. Like, I will drink your bathwater. Oh, wow. Boom, there it is. Uh. That's how that book goes down. I don't even have to read it. Dracula drinking Elizabeth Bathory's bathwater.
0: Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, I could just imagine that scene where Dracula flips open the paper and he's like, Renfield, why didn't you tell me that there's a woman who bathes in blood?
1: yeah like no Ren- joke
0: renfield's in the shit He's got to eat bugs again or whatever
1: oh renfield i'm surprised there wasn't a renfield in this i feel like there was a mention of someone eating bugs but it was like a passing mention early on in the book
0: well and the fact that thornley worked in an insane asylum i was like oh this is a perfect setup you know like for like a well, renfield type
1: character yeah but they're alleging that that's true too renfield yeah and, well that Thornley worked in a yeah in the the epilogue that and his wife did spend time there as a um patient That's, yeah so what you do yeah i guess you're a patient in the mental institution so yeah at yeah, any rate i'm i'm really glad that we read it it's a it's a great way it's our first uh book in october um i should mention that we're a little late this uh, episode you're supposed to get a an interlude episode last episode, but uh Rob, you had some some issues. You had to retire yet another microphone.
0: Yeah, it's this critical failure of my microphone. I don't know what's going on, but um Livius and I recorded the previous episode that we did. The I guess it would be the Katarina episode. And then a couple of days later we got back together just to throw together an interlude before Livius went on his impressive European vacation that I'm sure we'll hear about plenty of soon in a minute here, but uh and we get on, and I'm getting ready, and I'm setting up before we connect. And the microphone, my microphone just wasn't turning on at all. And um, so I did a little troubleshooting, tried this, tried that, different cables, different ports, different whatever. Nothing. Nothing at all. So uh, I didn't have a backup microphone. Here's a, I, I have, I own another microphone, uh, which is currently in Connecticut. I had sent it to a friend of mine because he had some recording stuff he wanted to do. Um And I was like, oh, I'm not using this one, just take it. Um And I never got it back, so my backup mic doesn't exist. <laughs> and so we had to, we tried, Livius and I tried a couple things, and, and nothing sounded good. So we had to table that until Livius got back, because I, I didn't have time to get another microphone before he left, sadly. But now I'm back, and I bought myself, I splurged a little bit. I don't know if I told you this, Livius, but... This a little birthday present to myself. This microphone I have right now is about the whole setup is about four hundred bucks.
1: Holy shit! I had no idea it was that much. Yeah.
0: Well, the mic itself is one ninety nine, um, and I think that I'd spent more on the mic I was using before, but since it's not a USB mic, I had to pay for like the the sw- the board, mm-hmm. the box setup, and everything, and so it all kind of just started piling on and yeah, it added up to about 380 bucks or something like that.
1: Well, I'm glad that you splurged on yourself. I'm going to be really honest. Yeah. Um, and it sounds really good. so that's good.
0: Yeah, if uh, it, it may take a few episodes before like we hit optimal uh, performance as I get everything set up and everything. Um, there's new switches, but I am using for anybody out there who likes the way this sounds, um, it is a blue spark. And this is like a studio microphone. It's got the XLR connection. It's not a USB microphone. So, yeah, there you go.
1: Um, happy belated birthday to Rob. Um, we did <laughs> not do an episode on his birthday, which I believe we've actually done before. I'm sure. I'm sure we have. Yeah. Um, Rob turned the big four um, zero. How's life treating you differently now that you've uh, you've moved uh, into the beginning of your fourth decade? It's
0: really hard to say because I've basically put my life on hold. Like um, I started a a staycation on the 5th and I go back to work tomorrow. So I had like 10 days off. So I have just been sitting in my apartment, like slowly cleaning things, like a little thing at like one day I'll clean this, another day I'll clean that. And just like really haven't been doing a lot because you've been in Europe and um, all my other besties are, are... otherwise occupied so i've just been kind of like relaxing i have watched uh some stuff so i'm sure we'll talk about um me watching the uh haunting of hill house but i'd like to before we do that i want to hear a little bit about your vacation
1: so yeah i went to um i believe i mentioned this on the last episode paris and london for um seven nights uh, I, uh, I'm going to keep it brief. Cause I have, I mean, I could talk for like two hours about all the, the cool things and all the weird and different things. I'll just touch on a couple of them. First of all, I will, I know we have listeners in the UK, so I'm saying this as gently as possible in the event that you are live in London or around London and you have not been to Paris. I strongly encourage you to go to Paris. Um, <laughs> Infer from that what you will. I enjoyed my time in London, <laughs> wow. but I fucking loved Paris. Now, I'm not at the point where I'm going to move there and write a novel that's going to burn down the world, but I'm probably not far from it either. Paris, wow. amazing. Yeah. Paris was really um, sunny. Actually, Rob, I'm sending you a link right now. I do want to talk about a couple of the things that I did do while in Paris. Um, the, the top thing that I did in Paris was um I went there's a, a newer apparently it's only been around for like a year there is a uh, digital light museum and, and some of you guys may have seen this cuz the the way I found out about it, it just popped up as like a sponsored link on Facebook or someone shared it or something I'm going to try to do this justice l'atelier de lumière I believe is how you say it which is uh I don't know what that was. Yeah, it's it's like the Museum of Lights or something like that. Um, I just sent Rob a link to their um, website. It is an old converted um, warehouse where they have set it up to do projections floor to ceiling on what are probably 20-foot high ceilings. And they project on all of the walls and onto the floor and in some cases uh, there's a little area where it's projected onto water and there are a couple of little rooms that you can go in and be surrounded with this digital artwork that's um, constantly evolving and moving um, uh, look it up online, definitely watch a video of it. It is stunning. And if you're ever in Paris, it is probably, um, the, I spent my best hour in Europe, um, in this place. I could have sat in there all day and watched there, uh, were either three or four like installations that change. So one of them would run for like 15 minutes and the next one was like eight minutes and then another one for like 20 minutes or whatever. And I literally probably could have stayed in there for five or six hours just watching them. They were stunning. And uh, I, apparently they change occasionally. There's a new one starting in January that they're going to add, I think, to part of the existing rotation. So um, if you can do that, uh, the music is uh, is perfect. Um, and it's this huge place. If you watch the videos online, clearly the videos were made when there were only a few people in there. It gets much more packed than the 15 or so people you see on their website. Um, but totally, totally, totally worth it. Um, and definitely a as I say, a a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but I get the feeling that we're going to start seeing this replicated um, in other parts of the world. Um, Hugely successful. um, Shows sold out, um, you know, the day of, not necessarily, you know, necessarily a whole lot in advance, but the the first day we went, it was sold out. um, But we were able to acquire tickets for the following day uh, to a show that was sold out by the time it started, and so on and so forth. So, Definitely something that uh, you should see if you're in or around the Paris area. Um, the other thing is uh, much older than that, and that's the Paris catacombs. Are you familiar at all, Rob, with the Paris catacombs?
0: Not not personally, but I'm aware of, yeah, okay. I'm aware of them, yeah. A lot so of bones. For,
1: yeah, a little bit of bones. So um, uh, apparently there are over 6 million skeletons. Um, in Entombed, in, I guess, is probably a fair word, but displayed. Um, in an underground labyrinth is the, the only way I can really describe it. Um, the majority of it is still closed off to the public, but you can walk for what I have to guess is probably about a quarter mile to a half mile, about a half mile worth, um, where you're just literally walking through rooms completely made out of bones. Um, it, it's odd because I was I actually it around before and I don't know where all the pelvises are. like the (laughs) the 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 chest bone the sternums um it is a ton of skulls and then longer bones um i like i didn't i don't remember seeing like any finger bones which is a little weird too so yeah um but like i said it's really uh it's it's a uh ossuary i guess is the actual term Mm -hmm. for what it is which is where you display bones but uh oh yeah um,
0: like my ossuary that i have in my house mm -hmm, i forgot about that yeah
1: um it's it's a very surreal feeling so it's it's way underground i don't know we probably had to go down if i had to guess 150 steps um to get there you know down there and then you walk through a long winding corridor uh that is not made of bones until you get there and they have an audio you get these little like walkie talk they they essentially look like old nokia phones and you get a certain place and there will be a plaque on the wall that says you know you know track one Then you push it and then someone explains to you what it is you're seeing or what you're about to see. And then they'll tell you to switch to track four or whatever. Um, But definitely the the two um, coolest things by far that I saw while I was in Europe. Nice. So
0: projectors and bones.
1: Dude, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So for sure. But then there are weird quirky things, too. (laughs) So like the things you don't think about. Like you think to yourself like, oh, I'm sure everyone's had this thought, right? Like in France, they probably don't call them French fries, which is totally true. But you can walk into a grocery store and find oh, bread.
0: They're from frites, right?
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. But uh I was in a grocery store and I saw bread, like the kind you would make sandwiches with, like wonder bread essentially. And it's labeled American sandwich bread. <laughs> because <laughs> it's not a baguette <laughs> is it well yeah because it's the bread that we use in america to make sandwiches and it's labeled as such american sandwich like what you, oh, when you so what, if i say if i say rob hey can you pick up a loaf of bread you're going to walk in you're going to buy butternut or wonder or whatever yeah. it is that, that you prefer right but yeah there that's american sandwich bread it's not just bread
0: maybe a little pepperidge farms if i really like yeah. you
1: like yeah Bread yeah. there is, and I'm telling you, it's no joke. I probably saw 50 different people just walking through the streets with, like, the long loaf of French bread in their hand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: the baguettes, yeah.
1: Yeah. It was it was amazing. Um, throw a little so, butter on there. Yeah. And, and then they have, I saw this in, in Paris and in London. In both places, I saw stores that were labeled as American stores. <laughs> like, in London, we saw an American candy company, which, when you walked yeah. in, was... You know, the stuff you buy at 7-Eleven here. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, there's an American food store I saw in London. And apparently now I'm not a big cereal guy, but I think that the Europeans think that that's all we eat is cereal because they have like walls dedicated to nothing but cereal. So, yeah, yeah it's, it, there's some some interesting, some interesting quirky things. But I will tell you, if you live in or around London and have ever driven a car in London, you are far more courageous than I could ever be. Um, spent a lot of time taking Uber in London, which was terrifying. Um, not just because of how weird and windy like their their streets are. Like, I can't I can't explain it to y'all. I have to show you when I see you in person. But the streets are really weird. They all drive on the wrong side of the road. And even after three full days, I couldn't stop being terrified every time someone turned into what I assumed was the wrong lane and we were going to be killed. Um, but the weirdest thing about it so in the united states for international listeners it is expected that you park your car on the on the side of the street in which the traffic of the direction you're going in goes right so here we drive on the the right hand side of the street yeah there there are no rules for how you park so like like at first glance, because I'm not used to the, the, the roads being the wrong way, I couldn't tell just by looking at cars because they just park on whichever side of the street they feel like, which is bizarre and seems kind of dangerous because that means they have to cross like oncoming traffic to get back in their lane when they leave if they're, you know, parked on right. the opposite side. Yeah. It was just, there's just so many weird things, man. I can go on and on and on, but uh, it was definitely an enjoyable trip. Uh, I imagine I'll be returning to Europe. I mean, I believe we're going to be in Europe for StokerCon 2020 anyway. Um, but yeah. And, uh, and if there's any argument out there, I can solve the argument uh, the Metro also better than the underground. So wow. I'm sorry. Sorry, UK friends. I will tell you that uh, that that is also the case. Metro cheaper and more efficient than the uh, than the London underground.
0: I, I'm, I'm a little shocked. I never expected you to like Paris more than London. Um, but I want to say that you know had 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 we thought about this a little bit more, you had an opportunity to to experience one of the biggest delicacies of the show Twin Peaks, which was the brie and butter sandwiches remember when the brother jerry, mm-hmm. he, yep. jerry jerry came back from europe and he was like super excited about these sandwiches
1: yeah so i will tell you i did not have a brie and butter sandwich but i did have <laughs> i did have a um a sandwich that was um like like ham and butter on a sandwich yeah yeah butter on bread in a sandwich is uh is definitely um something that we've missed out on with our american <laughs> sandwich bread <laughs> that's great yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was definitely, it was definitely a good, a good trip. Um, and I did get to do and see, um, you know, all the, all the touristy stuff, maybe not all of it, but the Arc de Triomphe and Notre Dame. And, um, we were in, uh, Montemart, I think is the right way to say it, which is the highest point in Paris, which looks nice. out over Paris. Yeah. I was, yeah. So a lot of tourist super touristy you didn't, stuff.
0: You didn't go to that Père Lachaise, uh, cemetery where uh, jim morrison's buried
1: no, no. uh I did go to one cemetery um just we had some time to kill so we did walk through one cemetery and that was that was some pretty cool stuff yeah. uh to see there no no i don't believe there was anybody famous in tune <laughs> there um but then again i don't know a lot of famous french people uh the other thing i was to say is i was uh, i was also witnessed a protest nice so I'll, brief, I'll briefly tell this story um we get off the metro to go um to the catacombs. Um, and we had been there the day before, so I was a little familiar with the area, but um, the line was like three and a half hours long. So anyway, we bought skip the line tickets for the next day and get off. And I look one way we get off the Metro and I look, I go, Oh, it's kind of weird. There's just like five cops standing on that corner and like two of them have riot shields on. They're wearing helmets. I go, this is a little weird. It's like, well, maybe it's an ex-. I look around a little bit and I go, there's nothing very obvious happening. They're just standing there. So I go, that's a little weird. And as I'm looking at them, I turn around and almost run into like 15 more riot police. So these are, I forget the name, um, but they're essentially like the National Guard version. They're a military branch of the police. And uh, there's a huge protest uh, protesting the current president, um, Emmanuel Macron. If I'm saying that right. Yep. Um, so they were the like advanced squad, like they knew which way the protest march was going. So they, they were kind of hanging out for when they got to that area. Um, nothing broke out that I saw, but in watching the news later that evening, apparently there were fights and tear gas and some altercations with the police and stuff, um, prior to them getting to the location that we were at. So, um, that was a little intimidating. We saw—I mean, it was thousands of people, man, marching through the streets. It was—it was a lot, and they were all very peaceful and very organized and, and whatever, you know. when we saw them, but it's a little intimidating, especially when you're not familiar with what's going on. Sure. It was—it uh, was interesting because you could watch the locals who c- couldn't couldn't even be bothered like raise an eyebrow at what was going on. So you could definitely tell who the <laughs> tourists were because they're the people who are all super antsy and like taking all kinds of pictures of the 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 riot police and stuff. So. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was definitely an interesting experience.
0: Well, protests are like baseball or apple pie for France. Like it's the national pastime, I think. So, you probably, you probably witnessed like, like the real culture of France by by being adjacent to a protest.
1: Yeah. The other thing they think about Americans is that we're all into sports. Every time you have to wear American, someone mentioned. <laughs> football or baseball or basketball or it was uh
0: you're like no i'm an american in paris obviously i like books
1: yeah i did go oh book related i went to shakespeare and company oh nice yeah i uh it was very brief um because you know it's a bunch of paper books (laughs) but it's uh (laughs) it was very cool to be there it was super busy um so the, you know it, it was very crowded and super busy. It is a neat place. It's a weird place. Um it's not like a bookstore like you'd think about being in a bookstore here. It's a lot of weird little rooms and alcoves and low ceilings and narrow walkways and you go up like a couple steps and you have to turn left to get into another room. So it's definitely not the equivalent of like a Barnes and Noble. Um, books stacked so high that they had little ladders everywhere. Like if you had to get something that was on, you know, like a really high shelf, but then the next room would have like a really low ceiling. So it was like cobbled together, um, seemed like from, for maybe even more than one business, like it started out in one room and then like expanded maybe. Yeah. Um, but it was, a uh, it was neat to, to be there and, and, uh, and to see that. And yeah, it largely large part, um, American books there. So definitely another you know, kind of tourist attraction. If you want American books in, in Paris, that's definitely the place you want to be. Did you play the game? I was not aware there was a game. So the game,
0: Oh, the game. I, I, I thought, I thought there was like a common thing for people who are in like the book life is you go through, when you're going through a bookstore, you keep an eye out for either people, you know, or like, like obviously for me, or for me, it would be like people who we've talked to on the podcast or we've reviewed. Like, Familiar people, familiar names, familiar books.
1: Gotcha. I I, I honestly had um I had a, a little bit of a time deadline, so I was gotcha. probably only in that bookstore for about ten minutes. Oh, but it was something to I was able, yeah, it was something I was able to get to. And like I said, it was really crowded, and there are times where I to wait for people to move to get past them. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was uh, I I mean I'm not saying I wouldn't like to have spent more time there, but uh, I, I I feel like I got. I, like i got the gist of
0: you got what you needed yeah uh the game i love playing the game when i went to austin uh we went to that one oh i can't remember the name of it but like that one bookstore and i was like oh i know that i know that person i know that person we reviewed
1: that book it's always it's always fun
0: oh there's paul trembley like that kind of thing
1: gotcha yeah i do do that um just not uh just not in paris mm, that's okay I'm totally going to go back to Paris at some point.
0: Well, there you go. Uh, I know this is going to be a long episode, but um, I thought it would be cool. I, I watched a little bit of, actually watched the entire season of The Haunting of Hill House. We're going to talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, keep it spoiler free, man. I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm like three quarters of the way through episode one. I was able to download that on my um, spotty internet while I was in France. It dropped while I was in Europe. Uh-huh. So I did the Netflix download and managed to get two episodes on there, but did not uh, did not manage to watch um, the entirety of the first episode on my way back.
0: I binged them all like in 10 straight hours last night. So I was up pretty late. Um, and and it's just a great so like I I'll, I won't say anything about the story. Uh, people will know that there is a Shirley Jackson book, The Haunting of Hill House, uh, that this was inspired by. And I guess it's not really spoiler to say that it doesn't follow the story of the original book. It's kind of um, its own thing, and it, and I think it borrows elements from. I have not read the original book, and that's one of those like, oh god, I hate saying those things because it's like a classic and it's like a worshipped, you know, book and everything. But um, I have not read it. Here is what I will say: um, it is a little bit of a slow burn at the beginning. Um but man, like uh there's the, the acting is incredible throughout the whole season. And um uh, there's this one episode, episode six, when you get there, basically like you're looking at what's going on with his family from like the perspectives of different people, one at a time. And then episode six gets them all together for like the whole episode. And it's just like in, in, incredible how they, they do that. But, uh, yeah it's it's very well acted. um the cinematography is great, um, just the whole design of everything, so like it's a very well written, well acted, and it's a very beautiful, beautifully shot and beautifully uh designed uh series.
1: Um, I, from what I've seen, I, I agree with the things that you're saying. I was kind of wondering how that worked. And, and this isn't so much of a spoiler because it comes up like 15 minutes in the first episode. But I was wondering about that because um, it, played, it it's a time thing, right? So it's a then and now. Yeah. Um, it's this family, um, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. I don't know what the specific time frame is. And then them now. Um, but I was like, oh, one of them wrote a book called The Haunting of Hill House. I wonder how this plays into the original. Yeah. <laughs> so, I yeah, was a so little, yeah.
0: It's not the Shirley Jackson story because that was like, I feel like it was, uh, if I remember the synopsis correctly, there was people going to this house for like a sleep study or something like that. It was a group of people They weren't related or anything. And then other people showed up randomly and just everybody was affected by the house. And in this one, it's a, a, a guy buys this house to like renovate it and flip it basically so he takes his whole family to live there just for a few weeks while they you know renovate the house and then he's gonna flip it and in that time whatever the house you know whatever happens in the house happens in the house so it's a, it's a it's a different structure of a story than the original um, but I, I think it borrows characters or like impressions of characters from the original book and since it's an ongoing series I'm wondering you know where it can, where, where it's gonna go. Like if there's going to be more after Mm -hmm. this season one.
1: I'm also embarrassed to say that I've never read any Shirley Jackson. I mean, we do have a podcast where we can rectify that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Just saying.
1: I know it came up. uh, Listeners don't know this, but it came up. We potentially were going to um, one of the books that was in the queue, so to speak, was um, Shirley Jackson's uh, We We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Yeah, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Man. was the one that came up uh which has also been adapted into a movie. Um so who knows? You may uh you may see Shirley Jackson in the near future on uh Unbooked. a throwback best of kind of episode. Yeah.
0: But I will say anybody that was on the fence about watching this, um, I I feel like the quality of the show is up there with like my obsession with Hannibal or Penny Dreadful. Like I feel like it's that high caliber. Um, and it's probably more approachable than than those particular stories so that's nice
1: yep i like what i saw of it and uh depending on what my schedule looks like this week i plan on getting through uh, definitely before halloween getting through all of it which leads me to mm. halloween that movie comes out on friday you know what i'm doing friday afternoon like right after work watching halloween i'm gonna go see halloween probably like two thirty, three o'clock, whatever that closest showing is to that when I can cut out of work uh, an hour early or so and go catch that.
0: Yeah, that's going to be nice. Um, I kind of forgot it was Friday, but I'll probably go see it, if not Friday, then like the first showing on Saturday or something like that. So I can be a wimp and like go out into the daylight after I get done watching it.
1: Oh, my God, really?
0: <laughs> I just like oh, first yeah. matinees. I don't like having theaters with people
1: yeah it's a uh, you know unrelated because everything we've mentioned has been very strongly kind of horror um to this point but the uh, bohemian rhapsody i think comes out the following week oh. so it's gonna i'm gonna see more movies in the theater in the next like <laughs> three weeks than i have probably collectively in the last two years yeah it's true
0: yeah that's uh that's exciting i thought you were going to talk about uh i thought you were going to go right to what we're what we're reading next
1: oh if i knew what that was I would totally do that. <laughs> well, I don't know what we're doing next week, but I know what we're doing very soon, which is um, an adaptation. <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weird to say this, right? Because mm-hmm. things are usually adaptations of books. An adaptation of a podcast, a serialized podcast. Alice Isn't Dead. Um, yeah. Bro, you listened to Alice Isn't Dead, didn't you, or no?
0: Um, I started it. It's one of those, okay. so I guess... The problem for me with, um, fiction podcasts is that, um, I get distracted by driving and then I, f- and I missed a part of the story. And so I always get a little bit, um, thrown off by those. So like, I didn't get too far into it, but I did, um, start that one. It's by, uh, Joseph Fink who created Welcome to Nightbale.
1: Um, uh, Jessica. Jessica Nicole. Nicole. That's it. Jessica yeah. Nicole, um, is wonderful as the narrator and you know 99 percent of the um, voiceover in that um i listened to the first season i did not listen to season two i started it but i only got like one episode in and then i get you know, yeah. one of those things where i kind of forgot about it. it's the netflix days man right like if it's not all available for me to listen i get really excited for the first one and then i forget about it by the time the second one comes around so um, but yeah, I'm excited to read the serialization of that. I'm planning on completely reading it in my head in Jessica Nicole's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, for anybody who's not familiar with her, I believe what she's best known for was her role in Fringe, which I'm sure Rob is going to throw out the name of her character oh, in a second now.
0: Astrid Farnsworth, of course. There,
1: there you go. Um, she does a wonderful job in uh, in narrating um, that podcast. So. Uh, if you want a taste of what you'll be hearing, we're not sure. That's probably going to be two weeks from now, I'm guessing. I don't know. We're not sure when that's going to drop, but it's going to be soon. We have uh, advanced reader copies in route. Yes,
0: sir. Uh, that's all I've got. Welcome back. Yeah. Welcome back to
1: the USA. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. There should be a Halloween episode coming up, maybe.
0: Hey, fingers crossed on that. That would be nice. Yeah,
1: so we'll see if we can throw that together because uh, we haven't missed one yet, I don't think, since we started. So.
0: Yeah, we can't do it now.
1: But that wraps it up for uh, for this episode of Booked. Until next time, I'm Livia Snudden.
0: And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading and drinking blood.